Today's episode of Candid Conversations is not suitable for young audiences. Parents, please listen to this podcast without your children present. You may choose to share portions of this podcast with them later, but please listen to it first. This month is marked as Pride Month for the LGBTQ community. With this in mind, we wanted to share Laura Perry's story with you again. Her journey through transgenderism to transformation in Christ. We hope it will both encourage and equip you. The reality is, it is an extremely maddening hell to live in this internal world where you're living this constant lie and everybody around you is telling you it's real, but you know inside how fake this is. And it becomes extremely depressing. So we finally stopped going to all the community events. We stopped being around anybody that knew the truth. So eventually the only people that knew were my family and my partner. I had cut every other friend out of my life pretty much. Eventually I didn't want anyone knowing the truth. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Would you mind leaving us a review today? By leaving a review and rating, it helps others to find us, and this would be a huge help. Using your favorite podcast platform, go to our show and leave a rating along with a review, and perhaps next week we will mention you on the show. As a child, she struggled with the desire to be a boy As a young adult, she went to the extreme measures to physically change from a woman to a man. What she thought would bring her peace led to isolation and deep disappointment. You may have heard the term gender dysphoria. If you haven't, it is the psychological distress endured by a person because of a perceived mismatch between a person's biological sex and their gender identity. What causes gender dysphoria? And what lies behind the desire to be a different gender? How should Christians view gender? And how can we share the truth in love to those struggling with gender dysphoria? Today's Candid Conversation guest, Laura Perry, shares her story. She opens up about her path from being a transgender male to a transformed woman of God. Join me as Laura details the awe-inspiring and transformational power of our Lord Jesus Christ in her own life. Now, on to our candid conversation. Gender identity, transgender, have become a cultural flashpoint in recent years. The use of pronouns, competitive athletics, even in the Tokyo Olympic Games. Gender and trans issues are in the headlines But what about the faith community? How should Christians think about these things? Today, my guest is Laura Perry, and she has a story to share with us. And so, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Candid Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's an honor for us to to have you with us. I wonder, Laura, if you could tell us a little bit of your story, lay that out for us, and then I'll sort of pepper in some questions uh, as we move along, if that's okay with you. Yeah, I was raised in a Christian home, and, you know, we were one of those families that we were at church every time the door was open and involved in all the little programs, and I went to Christian school. And so 
I heard about Jesus kind of 24 seven, but I somehow just completely missed the boat on what it really meant to be saved, what it really meant to be a Christian, because I just never had that relationship with Christ. I never really surrendered my life and my heart to him. I, I said the prayer, I was baptized and I'd rededicated several more times throughout life, you know, but it was like, it was never very real to me. And I never really wanted God in it. I remember never wanting to do my quiet time, you know, things like that. So there was just a a lack of understanding, I think, of the gospel. I grew up in this Christian home was kind of very legalistic in a way from my mom. And and I I always struggled to tell this story because I love my mom so much and um, she's come so far. But um, she'll tell you in her own testimony that she was kind of a a legalistic Pharisee. And she was doing all the right things, checking all the right boxes, but she was kind of on this performance treadmill for God, always trying so hard in her own flesh to please God. And if I can just do more works. And I really feel sorry for her now. She used to go to these pastors and she would just beg and cry and say, please help me. I just can't live this Christian life because she still had all this sin in her heart. And they Mm. would say, Francine, you just need to try harder. Wow. This was the whole mentality. Yeah. And so this kind of translated into, one. I think, one reason why I didn't understand what it really meant to to be a Christian and be saved. But also, it was kind of the same way in our relationship. So she was always doing a lot for me, um, but we didn't have a great relationship. She didn't want me around a lot. She didn't ever do a lot with me. Hmm. And I don't blame her at all. Like I said, I've realized now her own brokenness that she had, and that was kind of all she knew, I think. Yeah. was just doing works and being busy and all these things. What was it that caused her to push you away in some sense? You know, and I really don't even know other than I think uh, she had just grown up in a home where it was like that a lot, I think. Her mm. dad, um, he had been a um, a foot soldier in the trenches in Okinawa, like on the front lines in World War II, and he'd seen the horrific things. Mm. And I think when she grew, was growing up, he was just busy all the time and I never got to ask him this, but it's just in looking back, it's kind of my own conclusion I've come to that I I think it was like he was trying to work off the guilt because he was working three part-time jobs, but then he was also, um, she said about every spare minute he had, he would only sleep a few hours a night and almost every spare minute he had, he was doing some kind of mission work and she would go around with him and they were always doing something, but she said they were just busy all the time. Christian mission work. Right, right. Wow. Okay. But, you know, not really having a lot of time for the relationship. Mm. And so I think it's kind of all she knew. Wow. And so I think part of it, too, um, I had an older sister and an older brother, and then she miscarried two boys between my brother and I. And so when I was young, she was always so much closer to my brother. Mm. And there was, you know, I think part of it was longing for those two boys. I don't know all the reasons, but... Uh, part of it was just personality maybe, but for whatever reason, she just didn't want me around a lot. Mm. And it was like, go away, just, just get off me, just leave me alone. You know? Um, so anyways, like I said, I don't blame her. What happened was though, I began to believe these lies and um, I began to believe that mom didn't love me as much. Yeah. And I began to be very, very jealous of my brother because of the relationship they had. Mm. And I was close to my dad, but I wanted to be close with my mom. And so I just, I began to, to try to get her attention, but it just seemed like it was never working. I think what happened is once I began to believe these things, I had, I began to let bitterness and resentment come into my heart. And I remember at times trying to like sort of work up more anger because like if maybe if I can show more emotions, show how upset I am, then yeah. she'll notice. And so I would like hold on to these emotions and try and get really worked up. 
And so I was getting very, very bitter and resentful. And I didn't realize until later, the Lord recently showed me this in the word um, where it says that it's in Hebrews 12, 15 through 16 that says, looking diligently, lest any man fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person such as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And I see that in my life as I was getting more and more bitter and it was just beginning to affect my relationship with her. And eventually it started affecting my relationship with God. And I was angry and it began to affect all my other relationships. For example, I, at school, I began to think that the girls were rejecting me, but I think it was my own awkwardness as I, I didn't know how to relate to the feminine. Um, Cause I, I didn't have much relationship with my sister old either. She was quite a bit older than me. Sure. So I spent all my time with my dad and my brother. And so I'd go to school and it was like, I couldn't relate to these girls. So I perceived it as rejection from them. Mm. And then I, I was molested when I was eight years old by another boy. And so there was so much confusion and I began to get very sexual and I just didn't know how to, to navigate life. You know, (laughs) I had all these lies and I had this lens on that mom doesn't love me. And so everything that would happen in life sort of got put through this filter Mm. and it would be, you know, little things would happen. It's like the enemy found ways to reinforce that. I'd be like, see, she doesn't love you. And so this just got reinforced more and more. And I started fantasizing about being a boy. Mm. I was wearing my brother's like hand-me-down clothes and stuff where I was playing with his toys. And it was like, I was trying to be my brother, I think. And I would write stories a lot about me being a boy all throughout life, had this fantasy of wanting to be a boy, but never knowing what to do about it. Because back then, Nobody talked about transgenderism. I'd never heard the word. Right. So um, I kept sort of drifting through life with this confusion and getting more and more angry at God over the years. And then when I was 14, I found out that I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So Mm. I had cysts all over my ovaries and I was in constant, just chronic pain. And so they were telling me that I was likely never going to get pregnant. So it's like I had this body that I didn't want in the first place. And then, you know, it's causing me nothing but pain. And then I'm not even going to be able to get pregnant. And I was really, really angry. I started sleeping around and just having, um, I was trying so hard to to fix the brokenness inside. And I was trying to find love in all the wrong ways. You know, my brother had gone off to college. Dad was working a lot more. And I, I just, I felt so alone. And I kept trying to get the male attention. And the way to get that was by sleeping around, you know. Mm. But I was just getting more and more fractured. And I finally had this um, one guy that I thought really loved me and we had this good relationship and we were planning to get married and then he dumped me and it was awful. And I just Mm -hmm. was so devastated and I was so angry. And after all this had sort of built up, I told God that I would never serve him again. And I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted I remember thinking I want to sin in every way possible I want to be the opposite of a Christian yeah. because I was just so angry. Mm. There were times in high school that I remember praying to Satan, asking Satan to keep people from coming to know Jesus because wow. I was, I just hated him. And I knew I tried really hard to be an atheist. But I, sure. I knew that the Bible was true. I knew that Jesus was real, but it was just this like head knowledge. I didn't know him. Yeah. But then uh, throughout college, I just got deeper and deeper into sexual sin, into I started getting into pornography. Eventually I started acting out even more and more. And I finally thought, you know, the reason that this never works out, the reason I'm never happy is because I was supposed to be the man. If I was the man, you know, I know how to treat a woman 
And I just had all these fantasies and all these romantic ideas about how I would treat a woman. So I started looking this up. I really didn't. It was just driving me crazy for a couple of months. It was like every day I was just thinking, I have to do this. But I'd still never heard the word transgender. I'd Mm. heard of like people cross-dressing. I'd heard of drag queens, but that was about it. And so I looked up in Google, girl becoming a boy, just to see what came up. And I was amazed at like thousands of results that come up, Yeah, you know, and it's like, wow, there's people out there that feel like I do. Yeah, that's a big event, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's like uh, you've gotten all the validation that you're looking for in that moment. Everything that you are striving to accomplish. Here are people that are saying, absolutely, I've been there and I know how you feel. Yeah, I tell people all the time, especially young people. Um, I tell you, the devil will always find a way to tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. And I mean, whatever you're feeling, he'll find a way to validate it, you know. Especially on the internet. Oh, yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, that is one of the number one things I hear from so many parents that they're they're young kids and even people that that have detransitioned now. And they'll say, you know, I had all these thoughts and these feelings, but I really didn't know what it was. And then I went on YouTube and I found a video of somebody that said they were trans and they had all these you know, transition surgeries or whatever. And now their life is amazing, you know, and it's such a lie. I mean, you look at these people early on and yeah, they're really happy for the first couple of years. Cause it, it's like a drug that gets them out of the pain they're in. It's the honeymoon phase. Right. Exactly. But then years later, you don't ever hear from them. Yeah. In fact, there's one in particular that now this person claims to be intersex. As far as I know, she hadn't had any genetic testing, but regardless, she's had the same, transition surgeries so the process is still the same and she talks about how wonderful and how amazing it is and all of this and i mean all these videos for quite a while and then all of a sudden in the middle of it she had this one video that she's since taken down but i downloaded it before she took it down and she just had this like real honest moment where she was like i wanted to get on here and do this really positive video and tell you how amazing this was. And I wanted to encourage you all because it's like a morality to them. They think they're doing good by encouraging people to yes, do this. Right. They really do believe that. And so, but she got on and she was like, I just got to tell you, this is horrible. And I'm just having, you know, I've had all these problems. She'd had many, many corrective surgeries and all these things. She just had this really honest moment where she wished she'd never done it. Yeah. She was like, I wish I'd never taken that first shot. And then after that, she went right back to making all these positive videos. And she's since taken this one down. She's like, oh, I was just having a bad day. Yeah. It's like, no, you were really honest for once. Yeah. There's another one that um, this is one that people just flock to because this was a man that transitioned to a woman. This one in particular for a long time was making all these videos about how wonderful this was and all that, you know, but then you could see him really struggling with it. And eventually he started saying, well, maybe I'm non-binary and just waffling back and forth. And this is like the epitome of the person that really has it all together and has the, um, that is the the big success story. But you can see the struggle and the uncertainty. Mm. So anyway, I had, you know, when I started this and I was seeing these things on YouTube and seeing these, these stories on the internet of how people's lives had been changed and how happy they were. And then I, I, I showed up at a support group in Tulsa. I couldn't believe there was one in my own town that I was living in. Right. And uh, I went and the first day there was uh, just a handful. I think there were about 10 people. They were all trans. There were no like other supporters or, you know, family members. It was just trans people. And within five minutes, they're like, oh, you are definitely transgender. It's like, I knew it, you know. <laughs> yeah, more validation, <laughs> but, right? Right, Exactly. 
And uh, I was worried that I would never look like a man. And I remember the leader that was also a girl that was living as a man. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. After a year or so of taking hormones, no one will ever know you were a girl. And that's like what I'd wanted to hear all my life. It's like, yes, finally, all this pain will go away. Finally, everything I've ever wanted. And I can really become a man. People now will say that I was never really transgender because, you know, they want to invalidate my story, but it's like, I was so committed. I wasn't even openly transgender. Like once I really bought into the lie that night, I wanted to completely erase the existence of Laura and I didn't want anyone to know. So I started down the path as, you know, as hardcore as I could. Mm -hmm. There was a requirement to go to um, a licensed therapist before I could begin the hormones in the, I was just mindlessly answering the questions. I really wasn't, yeah. I had no, um, you just wanted to get through yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. No mm. desire for therapy, no desire for counseling. I didn't think I needed it. It was like the body's the problem. I just want yeah. this diagnosis so I can then take it to the doctor and get the hormones. Yeah. And in the third session, she put down her notebook. She looked right in my eyes and she said, wow, you really have issues with your mom. Whoa. And I was stunned. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, how did we get from me talking about yeah. um, me being a man to talking about my mother? And I was I was so angry and bitter toward her at that point. I absolutely hated her. And part of the reason I hated her so much, I kind of skipped over this part, but um, when I was in high school, they'd actually sent me to a group home. Mm. And I was still very, very angry um, at them for that. And I was angry at a lot about a lot of things in childhood. And I just, I did not want to talk about my mother at that point. I was like, I am not here to talk about my mom. And so this therapist, she said, so you're just here to get this diagnosis. I said, yes, that's all I'm here for. It's like, duh, I thought you knew that. Yeah. And she said, okay. And she just gave me what I wanted. I was like, I think she clearly knew that. Oh yeah. She struck a nerve. Right. This is where at least part of the problem was. Maybe it it wasn't the entire problem. There was a lot. I mean, I had sewed into this for years. I used to write Mm. stories about me being a boy, you know, so it's not like my mom was entirely to blame or anything. I don't blame her at all. But these early lies that I had believed, I think if this therapist had dug into that and started yeah. unpacking some of that, maybe she could have made a major difference. Sure. You know, but anyway, I, she just let me go on my way. And so I took this letter to my doctor and he said, is this what you really want? I said, yes, this is really what I want. And he said, okay. And so they gave me my first shot there that day and then um, gave me a prescription to buy him going forward. And, uh, I was able to just do it at home by myself and, this and is inject testosterone? myself. Yep. And I was able to inject myself with testosterone. You know, it was a huge dose of it because women do have a small amount of testosterone sure. that they make naturally, but this is a massive dose of testosterone. In fact, I was going to the gym at the time and the trainer told me that the, the guys were going to be really jealous if they found out because guys would, these bodybuilders would love to have this testosterone. <laughs> sure. But, you know, pretty soon my voice started to get lower and um, eventually started growing some facial hair. And it was like, yes, this is all going to be real. And I had my name legally changed. And then I had a job where I was only known as male. And yeah. it was just like everything was just affirming and validating all of this. And I had a partner now that he was a man living as a woman. So we were both trans. So we really got each other, you know, it was like, we really understood. And we really encouraged each other on this journey. And, you know, the first couple of years, we're just like on cloud nine, you know, this is everything we've ever wanted. And this is amazing. And I remember we were, it was, uh, both of us had sort of cut off childhood. And, and this was even in the support groups, the only reason we ever talked about childhood 
was to talk about how we'd always felt like the opposite sex. You know, we never really talked about the pain and wounds of childhood. Mm. And one other thing I want to say just to, to parents, I, um, the reality is that sometimes kids perceive things that aren't true. Yeah. And, but to them, like, to me, it was very, very real. I really thought my mom didn't love me. Yeah. And I really had felt really rejected by her, even though I can understand now that she did love me, but there are real wounds that lead to this. Most transgender people I know have, been through a lot of rejection, yeah. you know, and I had been rejected by all these guys too. So, yeah. but I just, you know, it was like, all this was validating all of this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you're in that sort of honeymoon phase yeah. where everything seems to be going swimmingly. Right. So how long did this process go on? Well, the first couple of years really, and we even had, I remember my partner, um, threw me a birthday party one year and it was like a little boy's birthday party with like, you know, a race car cake and, things, you know, it's like you're reliving all of this. It's the things you missed out on as a, as a young girl. Exactly. But what happened was I was wearing these chest binders. Um, it's like a very, very tight restrictive shirt that binds the breast down. And, um, because I didn't want my partner to see me without this, I was wearing it 24 seven, even to sleep. The only time I took it off was to shower. And so I didn't realize the damage this was doing. And my back was getting um, extremely stiff and I was really doing damage to my back. I thought, well, the solution is like, I'm not going to stop wearing these. The solution is to go have the chest surgery. I'd planned to have it anyway, but I sort of moved up the timeline and I I literally maxed out every credit card I had. I took out a, a surgery loan and I went to San Francisco to have an outpatient double mastectomy at the time. You know, I thought this was the pinnacle of everything I'd ever wanted. This surgery was going to make me legally male. And they were going to do a little bit of reconstructive surgery to make it look more like a male chest. This was one of the most renowned doctors in the world for this type of surgery. You know, I'd seen the pictures on the internet and I had all these fantasies about um, I was really going to be a man. And so just a few days before my surgery, my aunt had written me an email and she said uh, something to the effect of, Laura, please don't do this. You're you're being deceived by the devil. You are such a beautiful girl. This is straight from a pit of hell. <laughs> don't wow. do this. Wow. And I was so angry with her. I didn't talk to her for a long time. But I have to tell you that it had a profound impact on my life. Because mm-hmm. this was the one woman growing up. She was actually not even a blood relative. I've called her my aunt all my life. Sure. Um, but she was my mom's best friend. And she took care of me a lot when I was little. And she was the one woman in my life that I really knew loved me because I'd never really felt loved by women, but she, I knew that she loved me. And she told me later that she was compelled by the Lord to send this to me. She didn't just think this up. She really knew the Lord wanted her to send this and she knew it might risk the relationship. She knew I was going to get mad at her. But as I was laying there on the operating table and I was looking down at the purple dotted cut lines all over my chest where the doctor was going to cut me open. And I thought, what if she's right? What if I really am in the hands of Satan? What if I wake up in hell, you know, and I was terrified and I almost started to cry. I was waiting on the anesthesiologist to come in and there, this fear started to grip me. I just started for the first time in years, I started to pray and I said, God, I know this wasn't your will for me. And I can't believe I actually admitted that, but you know, I hadn't wanted God in years, but I still, the whole time it was like, I always knew the truth deep down. And I've talked to so many in the LGBT community, those that have come out of it, I'm referring to. They said they knew the truth the whole time. And it's like God was working on them and God was pursuing them. 
And so I actually admitted and I said, God, I know this wasn't your will, but I have to do this. This is who I am. I still didn't understand that no matter, you know, what I did, that I was going to be who God created me to be. I didn't get it. You know, it was like, I, I didn't understand God's creation. The only thing I knew of God was that if, if you wanted to go to heaven, then you would obey all his rules. But if you didn't obey his rules, then you would go to hell. And so I always had that fear a little bit, but I didn't really want to obey God's rules. And so I was always sort of hoping that I could be just good enough, you know. You've described it as um, you were always holding on to an understanding of God. His presence was always apparent to you, or the, the knowledge of him was a reality to you. And you said that you've found confirmation in that with people who have also gone through transition and, and out of transition. But did you ever get to the point where you you were so angry that you just wanted to reject it all, push it all away? I think you'd mentioned that oh, you yeah. tried to be an atheist. What was that like, that sort of drawing you back slowly? Was it through people? Was it just uh, like a consciousness experience? What was sort of the thing that kept saying, no, I still believe this is real? God just kept pursuing me in different ways. And it really, I mean, this was such a supernatural work that, that God was doing. It was like this breadcrumb trail. He was like, for me and just right, drawing me right. little by little little scenes yeah yeah and he used other people sometimes like my aunt yeah you know that had written me this uh this letter but um other times it was just god so i hadn't wanted anything to do with god in years but that day i really was afraid um but i had uh dreams sometimes where he would speak to me in my dreams and i remember one time i had this dream that my niece had, and it was a horrible dream. I, she had fallen down the stairs and I saw her like rolling down the stairs and she hit her head and cracked it open and died. And when I woke up, I was terrified. And I thought my, I, it took me about two hours to realize it was a dream. I thought it was real when I first woke up and I was just crying and crying. But when I realized it was a dream, i felt compelled to pray for her. I mean, I hadn't prayed in wow. years. Sure. I didn't want anything to do with God, but I really felt compelled to pray for her. And then two days later, she fell down and just like I had seen in the dream and hit her head. And they took her to the ER. She'd cracked it open, but she lived. Wow. And, you know, it was like, wow, like, I think God revealed that to me. So I would pray for her. Mm. And so that was one of those moments where it was like, God's speaking to me. And I knew the whole time I knew God was real. You know, it's just, I think I was just so angry that I didn't want God. But then there were times that I dreamed about being left behind, like Jesus would come back and I got left behind. Um, there were just all kinds of crazy ways God was talking to me. I had dreams constantly about being exposed. Like I would wake up and I hadn't actually started transition or I would show up and I didn't have pants on or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was one of the primary ways God spoke to me. But my partner was one of the few people I've ever met in the community that were conservative and it was really weird to me because he was willing to stand against the entire culture and he didn't care. They looked at him like a traitor, you know, but um, so we got kind of into politics and I was really intrigued by him because for the first time in my life, I began to wonder what the truth really was. Yeah. You know, I had always just gone by feelings, by what was popular, what made me feel good, but he made me really think about what the truth was. And so we got into politics and I started listening to a lot of talk radio. So I was listening to Christian talk radio for years wow. um, before I gave my life to Christ. And so, of course, my parents don't know any of this. All they see is what the devil wants them to see, that I'm just going deeper and deeper into the lifestyle. So here I was about to have this chest surgery 
and I'm praying to God. And I said, God, I know this wasn't your will, but I have to do this. And I, I said, please spare my life. And I was very genuine. I really just didn't want to go to hell. I didn't really want God, but I was like, please, I was begging the Lord to spare my life. And I think he honored that prayer, just that little admission that I needed him. And I woke up from the surgery. I was so thankful. I woke up that I quickly forgot God. I forgot my prayer. And I was just on my merry way. I thought I was just going to ride off into the sunset of freedom, you know, as this new male identity. And I soon, you know, I was able to get my birth certificate changed. And it showed up like I had been born a male and really? had my driver's license changed. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so all the documents I had, all you know, all the legal documents changed over. And I remember um, when I went back to work a few weeks later, I had a, a boss that was a lesbian. So she'd helped me plan the trip. She was very excited, you know. But when I came back a few weeks later, one day she got in my face and she said, look, I don't know what's going on with you but you're moping around here. You're depressed. You're not working as hard. You're unmotivated. I don't know what's wrong with you, but I want the old Jake back. And I was so stunned by it. I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. You didn't notice it yourself. Yeah. And I kind of blew her off. I said, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm still recovering, but I'll be fine. You know, don't worry about it. And I went home that night though. And I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I thought, what is she seeing in me that I'm not seeing in myself? Because she had really liked me. I'd been like employee of the month before my surgery. I said, you know, something clearly she's seeing in me. And I finally had to admit that even though I liked the physical results and I was excited about it and I was excited to have all these uh, new documents that validated me, the truth was I really had been depressed a lot because I realized that my surgery hadn't made me a man. Hmm. And so there was this dichotomy of like, I really had everything I've ever wanted. I'm legally male. I have the look that I want. Everybody around me believed it. I had all the affirmation. But the truth but I, didn't align with Right. And it was depressing because I realized that my surgery hadn't made it, made me a man. And there was this little bit of doubt beginning to creep in. And it was like, I wonder, you know, but this is only about year two of an almost nine year journey. So, but I just began to doubt just a little bit. Is this ever going to be real? Mm. Um, because before that, when it wasn't real, it was always like, well, it will be one day after the surgeries, you know, because I always knew everything I was doing was pretty fake. Right. Um, and I knew I just had this appearance, but I was like, but the more that you transition, you begin to believe it. Yeah. But at, when surgery didn't make it real, then it was like, whoa, you know, wait a minute. Will it ever and, come? Right. But I had yeah. to push that out of my mind because it was like, well, now I'm in too far, you know. And there was no way, every time I thought about being a girl, there was no way I was going to do that. There was so much pain there, and I didn't even know why. But I think a lot of it, too, um, not just from childhood, but when I was sleeping around with all the guys in high school and in college, guys would talk about women like they were absolute trash. And I was just around these these guys that just used women like sexual objects. And to me, to be a woman was just a horrible thing. It just felt like such a curse. And I felt like I had absolutely no value as a woman. And so there was no way I was going to go back. But there was this fear that was beginning to creep in. And so I finally said, well, you know, this would be real one day. Once I have more surgeries, you know, then it will be real. And so a couple more years had gone by and I was the facial hair started growing in more because it took several years. And I had a new job where I was only known as male and then eventually thought the reason it wasn't real is because I still had all these female organs. I thought once I have all the female organs removed, then it will be real. And so I had all the female organs removed in 2012. 
and then it still wasn't real. And then I thought, well, what is this going to take? And I began to get very, very depressed. And I thought, well, once I have the final general reassignment, then it will be real. And I will just forget about all of this. I can forget that I had ever been a girl. And I started looking at the surgeries and I was devastated because I didn't realize nobody had ever told me how bad these surgeries are. I mean, they really should call them sexual mutilation surgeries. Yeah. I've heard there are so many horror stories out there and they're harder to find now, actually. Um, yeah. I think that I know some hospitals have stopped doing them. Even the, one of the doctors at Johns Hopkins that was kind of the pioneer stopped doing it. Exactly. Yeah. He was the chief psychologist at Johns Hopkins and um, he has written several articles. They had it shut down for many, many years. And this was one of the premier hospitals for this back in the um, 70s, 80s. And uh, but they've since reopened it because of political pressure. Wow. And uh, but he still speaks out ag against it. And uh, there's actually a really good book if you want a lot of that information uh, called When Harry Became Sally by Ryan Anderson. It's a great book. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was beginning to doubt. And I remember the devastation as I realized that this was never going to be real. And I cannot even describe, but I still was so desperate for all this. I was willing to roll the dice and I, I wanted so badly to go through the surgery. And I realized that it was going to cost me over a hundred thousand dollars. And I remember thinking there is no way I'm ever going to have that kind of money. You know, I, I didn't have that kind of job. Um, I couldn't get that kind of credit. I knew that I was never, ever going to have that kind of money. And I was devastated. And I thought if I save all the money I possibly could, I was trying to work it out in my head. I might be able to afford it by the time I'm 60, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I just, I realized at that point that it was not ever going to be real, but I knew that the surgery wasn't going to fix it anyway, but it was like, I was always hoping that if I could get a little closer, you yeah. know, you maybe were on that trajectory, be a little better, right? right. And so I finally decided, well, I'm not going back to being female. So I'm just going to, live life somewhere in between. And I just felt like this freak in between that had no real identity. Um, like, who am I? I remember just the devastation. And I was going to a lot of um, sporting events and things. I was trying to fill my life with kind of a lot of entertainment and things. And I was just mm -hmm. so, I was so empty. And, but God had been pursuing me this whole time. And so just nudging me a little bit more and a little bit more you know, a lot of people in the LGBT community, that there's a lot of talk of this word acceptance. Mm -hmm. You've talked a lot about how you were sort of aiming for these almost like goals. You were trying to ascertain or accomplish like an inner peace or a, a feeling for yourself. But what about sort of your peer group around you? Was it was it something like you were looking for acceptance within a particular community? You know, was it with men or women or, you know, was that kind of something at play or was it all sort of an internal struggle for you? Well, it was mostly internal. And here's the, the strange thing that a lot of people don't realize about transgenders. And I wouldn't say this is 100 percent across the board, but many transgenders, I think this is the case that I have seen. Um, we early on for the first year or two, we were heavily involved in the community and we were, I mean, everything was about, you know, going to the support groups and being part of this, but there's this weird thing that begins to happen where the more that you're involved in that community, the more you're reminded that you are trans and you're not yes. actually the opposite sex. Right. And so it was a constant reminder that this wasn't real. And I was always trying to get rid of everything that reminded me of the truth. 
And that included family. I hated being around my family, whether they said anything about me being trans or not. They didn't have to say anything because just being around them reminded me of the truth. I was always doing everything I could to get rid of that. And one of the reasons that we quit going to the support group meetings is because they were so depressed and they would tell you how glad they were they transitioned and I'm so happy I became trans and all this. But when they just started talking about their life, their life was awful. Yeah. Everything was miserable. Their jobs were miserable. Their family was miserable. I mean, everything was bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. And they always blamed it on the fact that people didn't accept them enough or whatever, but they had all the affirmation they wanted. Most of them had jobs where they were totally affirmed as that sex, you know. It was almost like those things were crying out to them that something was wrong. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Seriously, people need to know that they think that if they affirm people enough and that they um, they just make them feel good about this, that they're going to be happy. But the reality is it is an extremely maddening hell to live in this internal world where you're living this constant lie. Everybody around you is telling you it's real, but you know inside how fake this is. And it becomes extremely depressing. And so we finally stopped going to all the community events. We stopped being around anybody that knew the truth. So eventually the only people that knew were my family and my partner. I had cut every other friend out of my life pretty much. Um, And I had friends that were affirming, but eventually I didn't want anyone knowing the truth. And so So it was almost like you needed an entirely new friend group. Right. Who only knew you as male and, and, and none of your, you know, your history or... Right. Transition or anything. Yeah. And that's the reason I tell people all the time that affirming transgenders in this trans identity does not work. It is not going to help them. And in fact, studies have shown, and uh, Ryan Anderson talks about this in that book I mentioned. Um, I can't remember the exact statistic, but the suicide rates are almost exactly the same yes. after surgeries. And they've proven right. that these surgeries don't actually help people. And I remember just the devastation of feeling like, what am I going to do? And so my partner and I, um, we actually became very antisocial because we didn't want people knowing the truth. We felt so exposed all the time. Like I I would be social at work and I would talk to people, but we had almost no friends. Uh, We really lived like complete hermits. So your partner was biological male. Yes. Transitioned to female. Right. Was he feeling the exact same sort of trajectory that you were on? Sort of that still that internal everything feels fake? You know, we never talked about it, but it was interesting. I knew that he was because he stopped wearing his wig. And then after a while, he stopped wearing the makeup and then he stopped wearing the the shoes, you know, and eventually he got to where he was wearing pretty androgynous stuff, you know, and I could tell he was just not putting any effort in anymore. And I think what happened with him, though, it was interesting how God works. He had been very estranged from his family for years. And they just didn't want much to do with him. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, literally, his brother that he hadn't talked to in a couple of years showed up on our front porch. And when he reconnected with him, I could see a progression over the next couple of years. It was like he less and less wanted to be female. Um, It was like it brought out the man that he had always been. Mm. Um, But I think a lot of it was that he didn't want to admit he'd made a mistake. We never talked about it. I didn't tell him how I was feeling Um, He didn't tell me how he was feeling about it. We always just tried to reaffirm each other. But I look back and I know that he was struggling with it. And he told me later, he admitted that he had become kind of disillusioned with the whole trans life. Yeah. You know, but at the time, I mean, we were just, we're just trying to make each other happy and, you know, trying to drift through life. And 
But it was like, I remember getting up some days and going, like, what is the point of life? There's got to be more than this. I have everything I've ever wanted. I, I have this identity because I'd gotten to the point where it's like, at least everybody else believes it. Like it may never be real, but it's better than being female. Cause I was still at that point. There was still so much pain there. It was like, at least everybody else believes it. So this is, you know, the best life's ever going to get. And this is fine. You know, I had a better job by that point, you know, and I, I had, at least I have a good relationship. So I had all these things, but I just was getting, you know, I was like, there's got to be more than this. So there began to be this hunger and this desperation in me for what is the point of life? Yeah. God had been drawing me over the years. I'd been listening to Christian talk radio and it was like, God was just speaking to me or, well, it wasn't even speak Like he was just softening me toward the idea of him, I think yeah. is what it was. But my mom actually had asked me to make a website for her Bible study. And I didn't have any interest in the Bible study. She was going to pay me some money. And like, I wasn't a great web designer, but I was actually hoping I'd gone to school for it. And so I was hoping to land a big job in that one day. So um, I wanted to work for my portfolio, you know, so. Sure. Was there an, an intentionality behind her asking you to do that? Or was it just like, Laura does websites, she can do this? Right. That's the funny thing, because if my mom had thought of this 10 years earlier, it would have been her plan. And she was like, yes, this sure. will, you know, but at no, that point, she it honest, wasn't. no, she honestly, I didn't realize at the time how much my mom had changed because she had always tried to fix things, you know, and I hear that from so many parents. They're, they're always trying to fix everything. But um, the night that I came out as transgender, I didn't know this till years later. Uh, she had thrown herself on the floor and just really wept before the Lord and said, God, I'm so tired of trying so hard. I can't fix this. It's like she had this mentality of she was always trying to fix everything for God, you know, and he's and God said, finally, I've been waiting for Hand you to over. admit you can't fix this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she really surrendered her life in a different way mm. and really let the Holy Spirit begin to transform her. And she said she would get on the potter's wheel every day, you know, and let the Lord just transform her. And so for the first time in my life, her focus was off of me because she was always, even though she didn't spend a lot of time with me, she was always trying to fix me. I'd had lots of health problems. And then I was having a lot of spiritual problems later in life. And so it was like, I was always this broken doll she could never quite fix, you know? So yeah. she was always trying to fix me. But I remember realizing one day that mom wasn't trying to fix me anymore. It was like I could breathe for the first time. I was like, fine. Because I always felt yeah. like she was trying to pull me toward her. You know, it was like, yeah. and I kept Which pushing was pushing away. you further away, yeah. probably. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. It was mm. like, I need it. And a lot of parents don't get that. They're trying so hard to cling on. And your child at that age, especially, needs to be independent. And they're trying to find their own way. And they're going to, you know, they may make bad choices, but you can't, you can't hold them to yourself forever. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so uh, she really had let go. In fact, there were times that she got tempted to try and fix it again. And the Lord said, uh, Francine, only one of us is going to work on her. If you want to work on her, I'll go sit down. But if you want me to work on her, you go sit down, you get in the word, and you work on your relationship with me, and I will work on Laura. And that's a promise mm -hmm. he made to her. Mm -hmm. You know, and God still uses us sometimes. Like he ended up using my mom. He used my aunt and he compelled her to send me that email. But I think we get um, our own ideas sometimes and we want to chase people down. And if I can just tell them this, if I can just do that, if I can say this, you know, but the reality is when people are really rejecting the truth, they don't have a receptive heart to hear that. 
and we can't do anything to fix the soil. You know, the parable of the sower and the seeds. Yeah. We can't fix the soil. Only God can do that. Yeah. So as I'm working on the website, my mom really, she just didn't know anything about websites and she really just wanted somebody to, to do the website. She didn't know how to do it. She knew that I did. That was really kind of the bottom line. And she didn't even ask me to do this, but I had this idea that I was going to summarize the lessons for the website. So when people clicked on a lesson, they would know um, what the lesson was about. And so I started to read the lessons and I was really just kind of skimming through at first, but things would jump out at me and I'd be like, wait, what is that? Like, I've never heard that. And I would get curious because all I remembered was God's rules and these stories that didn't make any sense, you know, but I really had not seen the big picture of the Bible. So describe maybe a little bit what your relationship with God at that point looked like. When the website stuff comes up, where would you say you were sort of on a plotted graph? Maybe somewhere in the middle. Like I I wasn't um, really pursuing God, but every once in a while it was just maybe having these ideas about God or just for an example, I had um, right before this, maybe about a year before, uh, for whatever reason, I don't even know why. I felt like I should pray about this job. I I really needed a job. And so I thought I would pray uh, and ask God to help me get a job. And I wanted this one particular job. I was really excited and I really thought I was going to get this job and it fell through and I was really kind of angry. And I was like, God, I was praying. Like I asked you for this job and you know, cause all the genie in the bottle, right? Yeah. I didn't understand (laughs) prayer and God's will and all of this. And, but I ended up getting a job that not only did I like so much better but it was a great job. It didn't make a ton of money, but it was actually a really, really good job for me. But God had a great purpose in that too. But I actually found out a year or two later that the job that I wanted so bad to begin with, they closed that office. They were all out of work. But at this job, this was the last job I had before I left the lifestyle. And my, my boss was a Christian. And so one day, this was right around the time I started on the website. So it was like all this kind of culminated at once. And she pulled me and a coworker into uh, the conference room one day and was having a meeting. There was all kinds of stuff going on in the office. There was a lot of gossip and just kind of some um, bad stuff going on um, relationally in the office. And she just looked at me and the other girl and she said, I don't know about y'all, but I'm a Christian. And just pause for just a second. I don't think she was really looking for an answer. It wasn't <laughs> right. like she wasn't asking if we were a Christian. Right. Um, but in that moment, I didn't know it was God at the time. I just thought it was something I remembered, but I really think the Lord was speaking to me, but he reminded me of the verse. Um, It came so clearly back to my head. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the father. And it it just pierced my heart. And I'm like, I had been denying Christ for years. Why all of a sudden did this, but the fear of God really came over me. I just, I remember my heart was kind of pounding and I looked at the other girl and it was like, you know, what do we say? And we both kind of shrugged our shoulders and I nodded my head. Yes. Like I'm a Christian, you know, (laughs) but I think in that simple admission and not denying him, I think God started to turn up the heat a little bit. Mm. It was like he began to work. Sometimes I think I'm just these little yeses, just these, you know, God will bring these things to us. And it's like just this little step. And so as I started working on the website and I started, it's like he started to reveal himself to me. And I just got curious. And so I started calling my mom and asking her questions about what she was studying. I was so curious and I just called and asked her a question. I thought that was the end of it. You know, I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. Thanks for the information. But the next day I had all these questions. So I called her again and then I called her again. So I found myself calling her every single day after work. 
And so, you know, all these years of me hating her, not wanting anything to do with her. And the only relationship we'd had over these about seven years at that point was um, we'd go to dinner once in a while. I really didn't want much to do with my parents, but I was trying to keep the peace. I was really kind of placating them, to be honest. Yeah, you know. Sure. But um, all of a sudden, I really wanted to talk to my mom, and I had this desire to know what she was teaching. And over that six months, God really began to reveal himself to me. And for the first time in my life, I began to see that God was really trustworthy, that he was faithful. I was blown away by the fact that he had made all these promises to Israel, both for good and for bad. Like, if you will follow me, you will have these blessings. And if not, you will have, and he told them that they would go into Mm. captivity and he warned them. And you see this, like how this played out, but also this promised Messiah. What really got me though, was when he had made all these prophecies about how they would be scattered all over the world, but then he would bring them back into the land and restore them. And I was like, you're telling me God made these promises thousands of years ago. And then we've seen him bring them back into the land, which was such a miracle, you know, after what, two or 3000 years. I mean, it was mind blowing to me. And I could see God's faithfulness to them. And I thought, if God was that faithful to Israel, maybe he'd be faithful to me. Hmm. And I, so I, I called mom one day and I said, look, mom, what's happened to me? Six months ago, I was 180 degrees from where I am now. I said, all I want is to hear the word of God. And that was not like me at all. I had not wanted to hear the word of God ever really in my life. I didn't even want to do my quiet times as a kid. I'd memorized all this scripture because I was in Christian school, but I'd not really had an interest. But for the first time in my life, it was like I had this hunger. And um, my mom said, well, I've been praying that God would draw you back like a magnet. And I was like, wow, (laughs) like God had really answered her prayer. And then I was really curious too what had happened to my mom because I really saw It was like God just opened my eyes one day and the scales fell off. And I thought about the six months of conversation. And I said, Mom, what's happened to you? Because you're not the mother I grew up with. And she told me how she had been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I remember thinking I wanted what she had because for the first time in my life, she was filled with faith, with peace. I remember the peace in my mom that she'd never had when I was growing up. I can still picture her face from growing up. There's just the stress and the anxiety and just just feeling so overwhelmed. I'm like, go away. Just leave me alone for a bit. Just get away. There was so much stress and anxiety in her life. And to see this peace, I knew that something supernatural had happened. So I went home that night and I began to confess my sins. And I just began to, Mm. and I was asking God, I really wanted to be clean. I was like, bring back to mind everything I've ever done. Like I want to know every set I've ever oh, committed. Yeah. And I just wanted yeah. to like get it all out. Like Martin Luther. Right. <laughs> and, so I, and as I did the, the shame and the, the guilt, I mean, I think it was a godly shame. This wasn't like, mm-hmm. but I just, mm-hmm. um, conviction. Uh, yeah. yeah. Just the conviction over what I'd done. It just began to overwhelm me. And I remember at one point, I remembered when I was praying to Satan, asking Satan to keep people from coming to know Jesus. And I thought, why would God want me? You know, I was working against his kingdom, you know, and I just began to really doubt that God wanted to save me. And I remember feeling really, really empty because I'd confessed everything I could possibly think of. And, but I felt completely empty. Hmm. And for the next couple of days, I thought, you know, there's no hope for me. 
but I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And I was just restless. And I was just wrestling with all these things. And I kept thinking like, I want God again. Is God done with me? Um, has God just completely cast me away? And I was riding down a glass elevator at work and I was looking out over the city and I, I remembered that when I was 13 years old at summer camp one year, I had dedicated my life to be a missionary. So that was kind of my mindset. Like maybe I could be a missionary for God again. And so I said, God, I want to serve you again, but I don't know where to start. And I was watching this couple across the street and God said, start with them. And I was like, what? No, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, I didn't mean now. I meant like, I mean, like in the future, like I need to be trained first. I don't know the Bible. Like, like, I mean, I had a bunch of head knowledge, but like, I knew that I was really ill-equipped and my heart started to pound. I was like, I didn't even know what God meant. First of all, that's all he said was start with them. (laughs) I'm like, what does God mean? And so I went outside and I'm trying to blow it off. Like, first of all, I've never really heard God talk to me. Not that I knew anyway. And uh, so I went outside for my break and I'm thinking, you know, by the time I get out there, they're going to be way down the street and I will have missed them. And I'm just not going to worry about it. But they were, I looked and they were sitting in the bus stop right in front of the building. I was like, of course, it's like God had packaged yeah. them right there for me. Yeah, right. And uh, I felt, well, you know, by the time I get over there and I start talking and then the bus will come and it'd be really awkward, you know, and I'm like, I'm just not going to worry about it. So I went back in the building my heart was just pounding and pounding and pounding. I mean, this is so weird. Like what is happening to me? Yeah. And I knew, cause I'd never had this experience before. Like I knew I had to go talk to them. I went back and forth. I went into the building four times and I couldn't get any peace. And I was like, and I finally got to this point was, it was like, if I make an absolute fool of myself, I'm going to be a fool for Jesus. You know? <laughs> so I was like, whatever God. And I was almost kind of mad. I was like, you know, you're asking me to do something so dumb and I'm going to make a fool of myself, but whatever, at least I will know that I had obeyed, you know? Yeah. So I walked up beside the bus stop and as soon as I walked up beside them, they just both turned and stared at me like they were just waiting on me to say something. And it was like, hi, Oh. <laughs> I, I, I never do this, but, and I didn't even know what to say. I didn't know really what God wanted. But as I stepped out there in faith, he began to feed me one word at a time. And I said, I feel like God wants me to pray with you. Is there anything I can pray with you about? And I felt kind of stupid because I thought it would be really dramatic. Like I'd seen the movies and I thought he was going to tell me everything going on in their life. And I was going to say, you know, thus saith the Lord. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, and I know God does that be sometimes. be a prophet all of a sudden. Right, yeah. right. But I, but I felt kind of like, oh, I've missed what God had, you know. But tears started streaming down their faces and they were stunned. They said they were like, we can't believe God sent somebody to pray for us. They're like, yes, we just moved to town yesterday. Said we don't know where we're going to live. We don't have a job. We don't. I mean, this they needed everything. And And in retrospect, I wish I'd have helped them a little more. But I was really so stunned by all this, too. And I was like, well, okay, let's pray. And I was like, wait, I don't even know how to pray. But in that moment, when I realized that God had, I mean, it was like, if anybody in the whole city needs prayer, it's these two, you know, mm. and I knew that God had sent me and it's like, God's not done with me yet. Mm. And I was like, at that moment, I was like, God, I'm completely yours. Like whatever you want in my life, I don't care. I just want to be yours. And it's funny. It's that little event is almost like the revalidation back in the other direction, the same way that 
you know, you stumbled upon the YouTube videos mm-hmm. that showed you, hey, transgender is a real thing and this validates how you feel and how you're looking. This was your revalidation that God was faithful. He had not abandoned you. Right. You know, your confessions didn't fall on deaf ears and that he was working. I mean, that's just an amazing picture there. Yeah. And it was so funny as I, I started to pray and I thought, wait, I don't even know how to pray, but I'm going to start, you know. And so as I did, um, I started swaying back and forth like they were sitting. If they, if we'd all been standing, I think I'd have pulled us all to the ground. The Holy <laughs> Spirit came on me with such power. I could feel the Holy Spirit through my body. It was the weirdest experience. It was like I felt like I was being washed from the inside out. And after I said amen, I, I really felt like light was just bursting forth from my chest. It was such a radical, radical transformation. And instantly, all these scriptures started coming back to my mind. And I started thinking of hymns and all these things. Like I knew in that moment that I was a brand new creature. I was like, wow, this is what it's like to be born again. I thought, why didn't I know this before? Like I'd heard of this all my life and I never knew what it meant to be born again. So I called my mom to tell her what happened. I said, mom, you're never going to believe what happened. And she knew from that moment, she knew I had been changed just from that phone call. And I went back to my desk and I turned off whatever I'd been listening to before. And I turned on Christian radio. All I wanted to hear was um, Christian music. And I just began praising God. I mean, I'm listening to hymns that I grew up with that I never wanted to listen to again. It was like everything that I'd heard all my life that I'd rejected and not, I hadn't known this good God, but all of a sudden everything was real. And it was like, I became alive. And that's what a lot of people don't get. They're trying so hard to be good for God, you know, and there's a famous quote that's been attributed to various people. I don't know who originally said it, but Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Yeah. You know, I really had been brought from death to life and I knew that I was transformed and I didn't know what to do about being transgender though. It was like, I was so shocked that God had saved me and I was still living as a man and it was confusing, but I just had this hunger for God. And I didn't know that the ladies in my mom's Bible study were praying for me and they were praying that I would have this ravenous hunger for the word. I told them later, I said, y'all don't know how much God answered that prayer. I was so hungry for the word that I was listening to either my audio Bible or some kind of Christian teaching or Christian radio literally all day long, every single day. I said, I couldn't get enough of it. And eventually I started going home at night and I was listening to it. And um, I said, all I wanted um, was to hear the word. And I read at one point, I read the book Pilgrim's Progress. I had remembered this when I was a little kid. I had seen the little cartoon movie and I thought, I remember really liking that. And so I had watched the little video, but then I, I was compelled by the Lord to go get a copy of this. I drove in a blinding rainstorm on my day off one day to go to this little used bookstore and got a copy of this book. And I went home and read like half of it. And I remember the conviction coming over me and like I, the fear of the Lord really began to hit me. I was like, mm. wow, being a Christian is different than what I thought, you know, because I had all these great feelings and I was, I was listening to God a lot, but I was really like, I wasn't living in that eternal mindset, if that yeah. makes sense. You know, I was still living for the world and for the things I wanted here, but I was really on fire for Jesus in a sense. And I was really like, I was sharing my faith with all my friends. I was, I was still a smoker at the time. So I was sharing Jesus out at the smoke hole and I was telling yeah. everybody like, you know, I was so on fire for the Lord and yet I was still living for the flesh in a lot of ways, you know, like the Lord was bringing so much conviction and I didn't know what to do about it. 
that book really began to pierce my heart about what did it mean to follow Christ. God had used so much scripture over the next few months, and I was beginning to memorize scripture, and it was just beginning to haunt me. And, you know, people will try to twist this verse or that verse, and they'll say, oh, it really means this, and in the original, blah, blah, blah. You know, people can find a way to make it say whatever they want. You know, but the reality is when the Holy Spirit really got a hold of me, the whole Bible was telling me I couldn't be transgender, you know, but clearly God loved me. Clearly God wasn't done with me yet. He kept bringing me along and um, he kept uh, convicting me little by little. And I didn't know what to do about it, though. I finally, one day I was so desperate. I wanted the Lord with all my heart. And I threw myself on the floor one night and I said, God, I want everything you have for me. I don't want to miss anything. My mom had been talking to me about the judgment seat of Christ. That's what she happened to be studying in her Bible study. And I was terrified. And I said, God, I want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. What do you want from me? And the Lord asked me a question. He said, if you stood before me tonight, what name would I call? Hmm. And I said, oh, God, that is not fair. I told you I've repented of this. I'm sorry that I did this, but I have all this facial hair. I've had these surgeries. I'm legally male. Like, there's nothing I can do about this now. And I said, what do you want from me? You know, he reminded me of John chapter one, where it says, Jesus Christ himself is the creator. He said, you can't claim to love me and yet reject my creation. And I thought I was being condemned because I was not going to go back to being female. Like, I was either going to be a man of God or, you know, then there was no hope. But in the most loving voice I've ever heard in all my life, he whispered to me and he said, let me tell you who you are. And that's really what began to free me because I I realized then it was like, no matter what I did, no matter what I called myself, no matter who I said I was, I was never going to be anyone other than who God created me to be. But there was freedom in that because I had tried so hard to define myself and I realized that it was fake that it wasn't real. And I was really beginning to be tortured by all of this because I had to reinvent my life all the time. Now that no one but my family and my partner knew that I was trans, it was like when I would tell a story about childhood, it was like, wait, I couldn't have been a um, in Girl Scouts. I had to have been in Boy Scouts. I couldn't have played softball. I had to have been baseball. And then one time I got caught in a really big lie telling my boss about an ex-boyfriend. And I, it didn't dawn on me what I was saying. Nobody knew that my partner was trans. So Um, I was supposedly a straight man that had a wife. And she said, Jake, do you swing both ways? And I was like, what? (laughs) You know, like, well, and I remember the alarm bells going off and the frustration. I was so angry that day. Like, I'm so sick of this, you know? And I was so sick of all the fakeness. And there's, Mm. um, people don't realize the hell that this life is. There was so much pain. Every time I thought about going back to being a girl, there was no way I wanted to do that. So I knew that God still saw me as Laura, but I didn't know how to get back there, nor did I really want to. And so I kept thinking of how I was going to fix this. And I kept trying to pretend like I'd never been trans. Well, maybe I can just, like, I'm a new creature now, you know? And I remember twisting the, there's a verse in, I forgot where it is, but uh, Paul says to remain in the state you are basically, I'm paraphrasing, but like, you know, if uh, he's talking about, if you are a servant, then remain as a, a servant, unless you can get yeah. your free, or if you're single, um, then remain single. So I was like, well, I was yes, saved right. as a man, I'm going to remain a man, <laughs> you know? So I kept trying to justify this, but one night, And I got really mad at God. I said, what am I supposed to do? Just show up in a dress at work and say, just kidding. I'm really a girl. Sorry. I'm sorry. I've lied to y'all for four years. I really cared about these people. These were my friends, you know, and I, 
I was really kind of angry. But um, I remember one night I was watching um, this preacher talk about like all this end times kind of stuff and um, signs that are being fulfilled in the earth and stuff. And I thought, well, maybe Jesus is going to come back like any moment. And I will so just I don't get have out to of do all it. this. Right. <laughs> yes. I'm like, please just come back. Please come back. You know, and um, he reads this verse out of Revelation, I think it's 18, um, where he's talking about Babylon. And he says, come out of her, my people, lest you partake of her sins, unless you share in her plagues for her sins have reached into heaven. And it talks about the judgment coming on her. And when I heard come out of her, my people, it was like the Lord hit me in the chest with a sledgehammer. It just broke everything open. I literally fell out of bed on the floor and just cried out with all my heart. And I said, God, I don't know how to change. I don't know how to fix this. What am I supposed to do? I was so miserable at that point. Um, And God had really opened my eyes to the agenda and how the LGBT community was persecuting Christians. And I was so in love with Jesus at this point. And he'd given me a vision one day of people walking along this white picket fence which didn't make sense at the time. I really, he told me later, it was like, that was the point. It wasn't supposed to be easy to walk on, you know? And he was pushing people off one side or the other. And he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. And he reminded me of the verse that says, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. And it was like, you cannot continue to live in this identity and support this lifestyle and follow me because this is against me. And so I, I just had all this going on and I had so much conviction. I can't even begin to describe the amount of verses that were beginning to convict me and all the things that he'd been bringing to me for months. In fact, I was so convicted, the American Family Association started targeting um, Target and they uh, made a boycott against Target because of their bathroom policies, because they were letting anybody go into any restroom, just however they felt. And even I knew that like, it wasn't good to let a grown man go in the bathroom with a little girl. That's not going to end well. So um, I signed the, the boycott target pledge when I was still living in the lifestyle. So, but I was doing anything I could to try and get out of this. I was really desperate. And I just began for about the last month or so, I began to beg the Lord with all my heart just to take my life. I saw absolutely no way out. There was no way I could go back to being a girl. It was so painful. And every time I thought about it, it was just like a knife going through my soul. I felt like I was in this deep, dark pit I couldn't get out of. And for that last month, the Lord really withdrew his presence. I had been so close to the Lord, but he withdrew it. And I cannot even describe the despair in the, just the, I felt like I was in the wilderness and I was so dry and so thirsty and I was so hungry for God. And I felt like I was in this deep, dark pit that I couldn't get out of. And I could see the light at the top, but I couldn't see any way to get out. You know, it was too high for me. And Jesus reminded me of the verse that says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Or what shall he give in exchange for his soul? And I remember thinking, like, what if I hang on to this? Because I can't see any way out. I really could not even conceive of being a girl again. But what if I hang on to this and I lose it all for eternity? I really began to be afraid. I had a clear vision of Jesus getting down on one knee. He reached his hand down into this pit I was in. And he said, do you trust me? I knew he was asking me to walk away from everything. 
And, you know, he didn't tell me what the next few years were going to look like. He didn't tell me how to fix my life. He just asked me to, just like the disciples, he asked me to come and follow him. Just leave it all behind. And it was like, oh, you know, this was a huge decision. But I said, okay, Lord, I'm willing. And I have no idea on this earth how I had that kind of faith yet. God had been building my faith and he had been, I had all these encounters with the Lord where he had been building my faith and showing me that Mm. I could trust him over those, it was about a year and a half. And it's like, I I use a picture a lot of, you know, and it's from the Bible story where Jesus um, went and uh, found the lost lamb and carried it home. It's interesting. I use the both stories of the prodigal son and the lost lamb. And in the prodigal son, there was um, nothing that the father could do to bring the son home. You know, parents try so hard to rescue their children. There was nothing they could do. But the shepherd went and got the sheep and carried the little lamb on his shoulders, you know, Hmm. and carried it home. And really, that's what it was like. I just, as God began to, and there was so much pain, it was so hard. The first time that I went shopping for female clothes, I cried hysterically, and it was so painful. And I remember my partner being so confused. And I mean, thankfully, he was, God had sort of prepared us. Um, I think we knew that we weren't going to be together forever. That last year or two, he wanted to go live with his brother in this really remote part in New Mexico. And I had no desire to go. And I was wanting to get into mission work. I knew that I, God had called me into missions. And so I wanted to get into ministry of some kind. And we were just on opposite ends of the spectrum. And I said, you know, we knew that we were being separated anyway. So he was really letting me go. But he was confused. Like, why are you doing this if this is so painful? But it was like, because I have to follow Jesus. So when I came home, he, I knew that he wanted me to move home with my mom and dad, which was the last thing on earth I wanted to do at 33 years old. But I had no idea the healing that he was going to bring out of that. And so as I, I moved home and I stopped wearing the men's clothes and I looked probably pretty androgynous at first, but I was trying, you know, but it was like, it was so painful. And I remember feeling like I was completely dead and it was like, Lord, you know, I've done this for you, but this is so painful. I can't handle this. And I finally, though, um, the first day I came home, I went back to my apartment that night and I thought maybe I've made a mistake. This is too hard. I can't do this. And my partner opened the door and hugged me and I felt like I was in the arms of a stranger. It was weird. I'd called in my wife for eight years, you know, and this had been my home. And we were in the uh, living room watching a movie And I felt like I was in a hotel room. I said, God, this is so weird. What's happened? And he said, I have cut the cord on your old life and you are not going back. I remember I was so terrified. And first of all, I knew he was right because it was like it had been completely severed. And there was a point where Israel, my mom had been teaching me this about six months earlier when God wanted Israel to go into the promised land, it was too overwhelming. The giants were too big and they thought there's no way they could do this. They saw the blessings that that God had, you know, the big fruit and everything, but they were too afraid. And they wanted to go back to Egypt where at least they had the food that they wanted, you know, and they, um, at least they were taken care of. And God slammed the door on them and he said, you are not going back to Egypt. You're going to die out here in the wilderness. I had heard that. And so when God said, you are not going back, I began to really be afraid. And I thought, please don't let me tie out here in the wilderness. Don't leave me. Like, I'll go in, whatever you ask, I'm going. You know, I I don't want to be out here for 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And so um, I was like, whatever you want. 
And I think it was that after uh, about two and a half days later, it was really three days and three nights that I really just felt completely dead. Um, the afternoon of about the second day, my mom brought all these cards. I was just sobbing and sobbing. And I really was at that point, I almost went back anyway. It was like, even I knew what God had said, but this was too hard. It was too painful. I literally had been crying for two days straight. I was in so much pain and I thought this is just more than I can bear. But she said, I've been wondering when the right time to bring this to you was. And I said, what? And I look and she has this basket full of these cards these women had written me. And they hadn't just like signed their name. Most of these women had poured out their heart to me. And um, they had told me how proud they were of me, how much they were praying for me. They were so excited to meet me. On top of that, they had raised over $1,600 to buy me a new wardrobe. And I was like, Mom, these women don't even know me. And um, I was so stunned by their love for me. And I thought, well, at least I can't disappoint them. So at the very least, I have to, you know, I have to show up for Bible study. And when I showed up for Bible study the next morning with these women that had prayed for me for so long, they embraced me and surrounded me with so much love. I remember them just, it was like the, the reception of the prodigal son. You know, they fell on me and just wept and kissed me, you know, and it was like, they were so happy for me and they just embraced me like one of the women. And I remember the transgender lie just sort of breaking off of me, you know, and it was like, I didn't want to be a woman at that moment. I didn't, well, I say I didn't love being a woman at that moment. There was still a lot of pain there. But it was like it was like the scales fell off and I just began to see that I was a woman all along. I knew it was just painful. And so the way that these women received me, I was so stunned that they just accepted me like one of the women. I'd only been out of the lifestyle like two or three days. I was still in this identity shock kind of. But the next day, my mom took me shopping uh, for some women's clothes. And I couldn't believe the difference in a couple of weeks earlier when I tried to buy women's clothes. And I just cried hysterically. I was really picking out some really feminine things. And my mom was, she was like, you don't, she was trying to be really uh, helpful, I think. But she was like, you don't have to buy like the most feminine stuff. You know, it's, you can wear this other. I was like, no, I really want to. God was just doing this incredible miracle in my heart. And um, I really wanted to be, uh, to be all out for Jesus. And so I just began to buy the most feminine things I could. And I noticed that the more, that I was embracing my femininity, the more healing he was bringing. And the more I began to forgive my mother and we began to heal. And that year, actually I lived with them for about two years and it was so incredibly healing as God um, used them. And also I got very involved in the church and I just became part of the body of Christ. And my identity became less and less about, you know, what I felt or whatever uh, that just began to fade away. And I began to use it as such a testimony. So I would go up to people on the street and I'd start talking about Jesus because I just had this evangelist heart. And I would say, the reason I look so weird is because I used to be transgender, but Jesus has set me free. People look at me so weird, but I just used it as as a testimony. And then I remember one day um, when I was saying that, because I'd said that all the time. And this one guy looked at me like, you don't look weird. And I was like, I kind of stopped for a minute. It was like, wow, like I just look like a girl now. (laughs) It was like all that had faded away. And so it was such a supernatural work that God did in this healing that he brought, you know, and I didn't figure out how to fix myself. But the more that I submitted to him and that first year that I was home and my parents didn't make me get a job or anything, they were so gracious. They gave me time to really heal 
And I spent so much time in the word and so much time at the church and not just being busy at the church, but I really like, I really began to be part of the body. And so it really was incredibly healing to me. And so over the years, as God began to peel away these layers and he began to heal me. And today, like I have absolutely no desire to go back. I've been set free completely of all those feelings. I know there are people that still struggle after many years. You know, we're not always guaranteed in this life that we won't have struggles. I mean, we're going to have struggles in this life. Um, We're promised the opposite. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. um, In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, and we may be entering some very hard times as Christians. So whether your struggle is internal or whether it's external, we're going to have struggles and we're going to have trials. But the Lord has been so faithful through all of this. And there's other ways that I have struggled, you know. So even though those feelings have been gone, it's not like my life is totally perfect now and it's just easy. And, you know, there are hard times. But Jesus has been so faithful to me and he's never failed me. He's never forsaken me. He has just done this great work in me that I could have never done myself. But in truly surrendering to him, he has done what man says is impossible. They say that it's impossible to go back. You can't ever not be trans. You know, it's who you are. But Jesus can do what is impossible with man. Mm. You tell your story so well. And of course, it's your story, or rather, uh, the Lord's story through you. But, you know, one of the things I keep thinking in the back of my head was, you know, as you were talking about your transition from Laura to Jake, we talked a little bit about like what kept you going because you kept having those moments of fear and doubt that it wasn't true, Mm. it wasn't real. And I guess my question on the flip side would be, as you're sort of growing in this process of a love and a knowledge for the Lord and his word and this, you know, what we would call a process of sanctification, what were the things that were keeping you going there? And what were the the fears and the doubts and the questions that kept recurring with you in your Christian walk? And even did those still continue to this day? Yeah, what was keeping me going was just the 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 radical transformation in my life that I could see that following Jesus really was worth all the pain and everything that had happened. There's a verse in first uh, Corinthians that says, I has not seen nor ear has heard, nor has even entered into the heart of man, the things that God has for those that love him. And I always thought that was just heaven one day, but yeah. really in this life, he has given so much back to me. There's another one that says um, where Jesus said that he who has left, houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or wife or lands for my sake shall receive in this life a hundredfold the same things. In fact, I've seen God do that so much in my life that I have received so much more than I ever gave up, not in material things, but in relationships and joy and peace in these things that I have. It's just been incredible to see what God has done. And he's taken care of everything that I have needed It's just been worth everything, every moment of pain. And that's what keeps me motivated is to see that, and not just my life, but to see the lives that he has transformed through my story or through me just sharing the gospel with people. That's what keeps me motivated. Just seeing lives transform. There was one day where I got a chance to share with a guy and the Lord just wanted me to go talk to this random guy. And it was a bit of a long story how the Lord worked out this perfect timing. And I, I asked him, Uh, I said, do you know if something happened to you tonight, do you know if you would go to heaven or hell? And he said, why did you ask me that? And I said, well, I felt like the Lord wanted me to ask you that. This is just a random guy on the street. 
And he had literally been walking around all day since 4.30 or so in the morning. He had overdosed and nearly died um, that night. He was completely out. And he had been walking around all day asking, like, what had happened if I had died? Yeah, what would happen? Yeah. Wow, wow. And then yeah. he's, here he is confronted right. with a question from a person. Right. <laughs> so I got to share the, the gospel with him, you know, and it's those yeah. kind of and things. Like, so what motivates mm. me is seeing that lives can be absolutely transformed by Jesus Christ and by the power yeah. of the gospel. So now what does life look like? Are you, are you, you have a ministry, you're going out, you're speaking, you're, you're doing the work of an evangelist. You know, what is, what is sort of this day to day look like for you? Well, I work full time uh, for First Stone Ministries um, here in Oklahoma City. And uh, we are a ministry of sexual redemption, we call it. So we help anybody that's struggling with, it might be unwanted same sex attractions or gender issues, but it might also be pornography addiction, um, might be people that have um, had an affair or just relational brokenness. We have a lot of people that have just, they've been through abuse maybe or for whatever reason. Uh, So we do counseling and support groups and things, but um, we go and speak a lot. And then I was also in a documentary called In His Image from the American Family Association. And uh, we've done some screenings and things where we'll go and participate in Q&As and things like that. We'll speak at conferences. So that's really the primary role that God has had me in is speaking and writing. Uh, I have a book as well called Transgender to Transform that details my story. And then also um, just really my biggest heart, though, all of this for me is a platform for the gospel. I'm really an evangelist at heart. I love to share the gospel. And so that's really my motivation. Well, and, and you know, developing sort of a public persona, one would assume that objections and voices of opinion come into play. And so what are some of those objections that you've heard from people, you know, most likely from the LGBTQIA community? Yeah, it's funny because a lot of them, I don't think know what to do with my story. I've gotten a lot of hate and stuff and, but some of them uh, just try to invalidate that say, Oh, you were never yeah. really trans. I'm like, yes. You just have no idea, sure. you know, um, what it was really like. I, I wanted to absolutely erase the existence of Laura and, but it's like the Lord can overcome all of that. But even in those moments, this is what the Lord has taught me. Um, In those moments, there's such peace. And when people are yelling and screaming at me, I've had such pity and compassion on them. And there's a verse that talks about how um, in the time of trouble, he will hide us in the secret of his pavilion and he will um, keep us in his tabernacle in the secret of his presence. Another verse says, So it's like in those moments when we are just being yelled at and God will give us the grace for whatever we need to endure. Um, Just a a quick example. I had a a neighbor that I was trying to share the gospel with one time and he was just yelling and screaming at me to get off his porch. And I remember just having (laughs) such compassion for him. And I've actually prayed for him a lot since then. I'm like, maybe God just wanted me to pray for him, you know, Um, at the very least. So, but you never know. Jesus said that if people hate us, that it's actually him that they hate. They yeah. hated him first. He said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted yeah. me, they will persecute you. But in that, we, um, we're we promised that if we share in his sufferings, we will also share in his glory. And when we suffer, Jesus is glorified. You know, So I, I get a lot of inspiration too from uh, the Ten Booms. I don't know if you're familiar with Corey Ten Boom uh, oh, course, from yes. World War II. Yeah. Um, and anybody, I, I encourage every Christian to read The Hiding Place. Such an incredible mm-hmm. book. 
and um, it's so encouraging of what it really looks like to to glorify Christ in the midst of suffering. Yeah. And we're, we're promised an eternity to be out of suffering. This life is a vapor and we're, we're to lose our lives for Christ. But if we will truly lose our life um, in that, he promises we will save it. Well, and you bring up that issue, and, 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 and I know that you've had conversations and debates with people who identify with the Christian community, but also with the LGBTQIA community as well. They sort of try and say that they can live both. What God wants is for me to be happy and these sorts of things. How do you sort of engage with them, and how do you sort of tease out what they're dealing with and, and kind of bring to light some of these things? Well, I think the most important thing is to be led by the Holy Spirit. Um, because he knows what they need to hear, most importantly, because there's no cookie cutter right answer. But really, it's about um, like, what does it really mean to follow Christ? You know, if if you are part of his body, then you are not your own. You're bought right. with a price. Yes. But I think the reality is a lot of times I just start with the gospel and what it really means to follow Christ. Because when they're arguing all these things, a lot of times they don't really know Christ. They have a form of godliness, but they're denying the power thereof. They claim they're a Christian. I claimed I was a Christian at various times in my life, and and then I would go back, and but I didn't know God. Just like uh, the girl that I had the debate with, it was clear to me that she didn't really know Jesus. And I think that's where a lot of them are. Um, but people that really want to argue the scriptures, you know, let's let's go and look at it because God's word is true. But like I said earlier, I think the reality is that people they hear what they want to hear. They will find ways to distort and twist the word. But when the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, the whole Bible began to speak to me. I was convicted by so many verses that were telling me I couldn't live this lifestyle. Mm. And I remember one in particular um, where I think it's 1 Corinthians where he says, Do you not know that all of us who are in Christ are part of his body and we are members of his body? And he that is joined to a harlot is one flesh with her. So in other words, like if you are... If you're joined to a harlot, if you're in any kind of sexual sin, you are attaching that and bringing that into the body of Christ. You're defiling the body of Christ. And I remember yeah. being so convicted by that. Mm. Because even though I was with an opposite sex person, so we were still heterosexual kind of either way, um, but we were still in a lot of sexual sin. Yeah. you know. And I was still in this identity that mars the image of God. Isaiah 29 15 to 16 says, Woe unto them that seek deep to uh, hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who sees us and who knows us? He said, Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the thing that is made say of him that made it, you made me not? Or shall the thing that is framed say of him that framed me, you had no understanding? Like, yeah. Are we going to say that um, yeah. what God has made is um, like he didn't know what he was doing? To say that we know better than God is the ultimate sin. People try to say that transgenderism, you know, God, God just wants us to be happy and he wants us to be our true selves or, but to say that, you know, better than God is the ultimate pride and it's the ultimate sin. And we all have that pride in some form or another. We've all gone our own way, but this is just one of the ways it's an extreme outward expression of that. Mm. Um, But we've all gone our own way. And the point is that we all need to go God's way. Well, help us think a little bit clearly as we're thinking as a body of believers, as a church, how do members of a church who are live what they call a heteronormative lifestyle, how do we help the community who 
and I want to be careful here because there's I think there's uh, two categories here probably. There's there's those who are living the lifestyle without struggle in terms of they pursue it in its entirety. They have no desire for God in, in some respect. So there's a level of dealing with the community in that sense. But then there's those who genuinely struggle with it and are at, at odds. Uh, perhaps they grew up in a Christian home such as yourself, and they don't know how to deal with their emotions and their feelings and what leads them and guides them. How do we deal with each of those communities uh, as a church in a loving and uh, helpful way? Yeah, I think um, the gospel is the answer, especially for those that are, well, really for both categories, um, (laughs) because they may, I I think both are lost, right? For those that really don't know Christ, for those that are just lost and they're out and proud and whatever. And a lot of times they've been really angry at the church. I was really angry with God. There is a point where they're not as receptive, sometimes just praying for them, um, ask the Lord for open doors, but uh, sometimes they just don't have listening ears and they are trampling on the truth. And that's what in the parable of the sower and the seeds, the seed fall, that falls along the path is the, the one that's snatched out of their heart. But it's on the path. It's where they're walking. They are yeah. intentionally trampling on the truth. And that's what Romans 1 tells us, that they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And so there's a point where it's not going to do a lot of good. One of the ways that we can witness to people like that is instead of focusing on their sin, is to yes. focus on what Christ has done for us. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, Revelations 12. One of the ways that my parents actually were a witness to me, for years they had tried to fix me. They were always focused on what I was doing wrong. But um, when they really began to focus more on the Lord, they just started talking about what Jesus was doing in their life. And it wasn't this. They weren't pushing me. They weren't. I didn't feel like this was always some sermon at me. They were so in love with Christ that it just began to flow out of them. And it became so much a part of who they were. And so they just exalted Christ. You know, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And I've seen that so true. So if we focus on people's sin and everything they're doing wrong, you know, it doesn't do a lot of good. But I will tell you, too, that's what John the Baptist did. You know, that's what Jesus did sometimes. There is a time for that. And if the Lord prompts you to, there's absolutely a time. Sometimes even Jude talks about how um, some saved by Fear, I'm paraphrasing yeah. a bit, but um, some yes. say by love, in other words, and really being kind and compassionate, but some say by fear, snatching them out of the fire. Well, we all, we need the fear of the Lord more in the church. Yes. It, it's really mm. been absent from the church. There's no fear of mm. God. There's no fear of sin. There's no, um, so there is a place for that, but it does have to it's be the beginning with, of wisdom. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But we need, we do need to have compassion and love. But a lot of times, I think what happens is we let the world define what love is. Yeah. You know, Jesus was not just a loving person. He was the very source of love himself. And it got, yeah. you know, his love got him nailed to a cross. They hated him and they rejected him. We're, right. The reality is we're never going to be loving enough for the world to love us. I think there's a problem right now in the in the church of wanting so desperately for the world to love us. And we have this idolatry of mm. wanting the world to say how loving we are. You know, yeah. we want to be the most loving people out there. But the reality is that sometimes... By their definition. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah, by their definition. But what they want is for people to uh, celebrate and affirm their sin and let them go do whatever they want, just like a child. Yes. So we need to be secure in what how God loves. And that mm. is by serving. You know, he came to serve, not to be served. And then, um, but speaking the truth in love by being long-suffering with people... Um, impatient, 
but affirming the truth over them. One of the best examples I have, this was, I can't remember whose testimony it was. It was one I saw on CBN, this girl who she had gone to a church and she was living as trans and um, she was, they're kind of on a dare. I think somebody, she didn't want to be there, but somebody I think had right. dared her to go and she's wow. sitting there all tough, you know, their arms crossed and um, the pastor noticed her and he impelled by the Holy Spirit. He called her up to the front of the church and she thought, great, you know, here it is. He's going to tell me to get out of here and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, this is just going to prove how hateful Christians are. And he wrapped her in the biggest bear hug and just held tightly to her to she, where she couldn't get out. And he began to speak the truth over her. And he said, began to say, you are a beautiful daughter of God. And just began to affirm the truth over her. The last thing people would tell you to do. But um, she was stunned. And our marriage, she, like in the video, she's kind of like backing up like, wow, I don't. Um, you know, and she walked out and that's the last he knew of it for a long time. As far as he knew, he completely failed. You know, she just walked out, but it had a profound impact on her. And about six months later, she got saved. And she really credits him with being willing to speak the truth that she didn't want to hear. So there's a time and a place, but I think it's all about listening to the Holy Spirit. But for those that are really struggling and they're, they're genuinely, they've come to the Lord and they want to be free um, but they just don't know how. A lot of times they need counseling. They really need um, somebody to walk through some of these issues. Why have they felt this way? Because there's almost always a, a root cause. This is almost always based in rejection, in lies they've believed about themselves, jealousy of siblings. There's a lot of things it could be. But there is some sort of reason for this. And people don't like that. They want to believe they're born that way and they can't ever overcome it. And that's just who they are. Because it's easier. Yeah, it's easier to stay where you are at that moment, right. even if it's painful. Yeah. But the more that we can die to ourselves, the more that our identity becomes in Christ and not in our flesh. Because we're commanded over and over and in the word to walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. We're to die to ourselves. And one of my favorite verses in Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Mm. You know, and I think that's the crux of all of this is that this is about Christ. But we don't understand the life that God has for us is so much better than the life we could ever make for ourselves. And he promises us, um, that we will be co-heirs with Christ in an eternal kingdom. I mean, it's like if people could get a vision for what God has for us, the devil's trying to sell such a cheap counterfeit. Yeah. But what God has is mind-blowing, even in this life. But we're only seeing a tiny fraction now of what he has for us to come. Amen. A final question, and that's sort of what, what is your relationship with your parents and your family and, and some of your friends and an ex-partner? How do those look today? Um, my parents and I have an amazing relationship now. God has really restored and redeemed it so much. Um, there's a verse in Joel 2.20 that says um, that God will restore the years the locust has eaten. And yeah. that's really what he's done. And he has redeemed yeah. everything. I talk to my parents all the time now. I love spending time with them and I really don't have much relationship with the people I knew in the community, but I had been estranged for them the last seven or so years of the the journey. Um, I've tried to write to some of them again, and they've just never responded. But I just pray that one day it's going to have an impact. And, you know, they've at least heard that somebody has come out of this and that has come to yeah. Christ. And then my ex-partner, he eventually left the lifestyle as well. 
and he came to Christ. I don't know. I don't know quite where he stands. He didn't have sort of the radical on fire transformation that I did, but I know the Lord was really working on him. He'd always tell me, he was like, Oh, I just don't wear it on my sleeve. Like you do. That's what he always said. But then one day he told me that, um, he had been, um, witnessing to his boss. So I was like, wow, you know, so, uh, the Lord was certainly working on him. And, uh, so I don't know, it's just been an incredible journey to seeing lives transformed. And there've been people just to encourage people, I've had a couple of people that told me that I was wrong and I was so hateful and, and God was okay with them being trans. And they came back to me a year later and were like, no, uh, God has shown me who I really am. And it was funny because the one particular person I'm thinking of, he didn't um, give me any kind of credit or anything. Not that I needed it. It was just funny. It was like he'd forgotten everything that I had been telling him. And he was like, God showed me who I really am. And he spoke that it was my name that like, this is who I am, you know, and all this. And I was like, the Lord was speaking through you. Right. It's all about Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that speaks to people. Yeah. He must increase. I must decrease. Yes, absolutely. a challenge, but that's part of the dying to self, yeah. right? I mean, we, we want to put ourselves on the pedestal. Right. We want to be the center of our own story, and it's not it's right. not the case. And yet, as you so eloquently said, we have the privilege of being part of the glory that Christ, yes. you know, in his glorification, at the end of days, we get to uh, enjoy that for our own benefit, which is, uh, it's a picture we don't hear described well uh, right. these days. Well, Laura Perry, just one final question for you. And this is a a question that we ask uh, uh, nearly all of our guests. And that's, you know, we come to that final day of glorification and and a resurrected body and you're standing before Christ. What's one question that you would have? Actually, I haven't really thought about this. Uh, I mean, I just picture myself just falling in his feet. I just, I can't wait to to see my Redeemer and the Lord, like, I guess I've thought about some questions over the years, but it all just pales in comparison to being in his presence. Like, I just want to be with him. I don't know what I would ask him, but um, I think more about what will my reaction be? Well, I, like the song says, you know, will I fall on my face? Will I dance? Will I shout for glory? You know, I don't know. It's a good answer. No, it's a, most people, that is the initial reaction is um, I'm not even thinking about a question. I'm just going to be so awed. Yeah. Um, and I think even even our our concept of what our all will look like will still pale in comparison to the reality, right? Like to when it yeah. really happens, we'll be almost like Isaiah, unclean lips, right. and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Right. But um, anyway, Laura Perry, we are so grateful. We'll be praying for uh, your work and ministry as uh, you do this very worthy and wonderful. Uh, ministry that God has called you to. And uh, we're just so grateful that you were able to take some time to talk with us on Candid Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.